welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And we are still talking revival. And this is our last one. You think? Uh, I think so, yeah. No, I thought about doing some on, you know, some prominent figures in revival, but then thought not. Really? So, yeah. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Hey, let's ask our listeners who never weigh in on anything to weigh in. Do you want to hear about some of the key figures or do you want us to move on? It's up to you. Time is ticking. Crickets. We are. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Okay. So uh, we've been working through this. Uh, it's just been a short series here and we've been trying to keep a distinction present in your mind, namely that distinction between revival and revivalism. Uh, remember, revivalism is any attempt by man to coerce revival or try to do something to bring it about, things like prayer meetings, evangelism, preaching on revival, so on and so forth. Uh, so that in distinction to true revival, which we have argued is simply that sovereign act of God. And there is nothing that can be done, therefore, to coerce it or cause God to want to bring it about. And historically, the prerequisites for that revival are the preaching of the Word of God and prayer. Um, these always seem to be present when God brought about revival, uh, though they are not a guarantee that God must bring about revival. Last time we looked at the uh, different views on revival. Um, remember, first of all, there's that no revival view. Uh, second, there is the view that revival only comes when certain conditions are met, uh, like Charles Finney. Um, and then third, there's the view that revival is always the sovereign prerogative of God alone. And that would be our position. And so today we're going to finish this out, I guess, by looking at uh, some of the marks then, uh, or the signs of true revival. Um, that is, what are the features or uh, for identifying that true revival has indeed occurred. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, the marks of true revival. Uh, first, there is an awareness of God's presence. Now, we're going to do a lot of quote reading here, um, and hopefully that will make things clear. Um, the Lloyd-Jones says this, the immediate effect is that the people present begin to have an awareness of spiritual things and clear views of them such as they had never had before. Now again, I am talking about believers, members of the Christian church, when they suddenly become conscious of this presence and of this power. And the first effect is that spiritual things become realities. They have heard all these things before. They may have heard them a thousand times, but what they testify is this. You know, the whole thing suddenly became clear to me. I was suddenly illuminated. Things that I was so familiar with stood out in, in letters of gold, as it were. I understood. I saw it all in a way that I'd never done in the whole of my life. That is what they say. The Holy Spirit enlightens the mind and understanding. They begin not only to see these things clearly, but to feel their power. Now, we, we would admit it, that that's a subjective marker, uh, but it does seem to be a real mark nonetheless. Um, Armstrong states, what is in view here is simply an awesome or awful, terrible sense of the presence of God. Uh, Arthur Wallace writes it this way, the spirit of revival is always the consciousness of God. Now, this is not an abstract sense of God, but a proper understanding of God is revealed in the Scripture. Um, 
again, though, it's important not to forget that an awareness of God comes through the ordinary means of regular ministry. <clears throat> this is something we say a lot, actually, and I, I'm I'm not convinced people believe us. Um, the power of the ordinary means of regular ministry, namely the Word of God and prayer. Therefore, this consciousness of God always comes through a true understanding of the Scriptures. As a note, this is why revival cannot happen without the prerequisite of the Word of God proclaimed rightly. If a true understanding of the person of God, His nature, and the gospel is not proclaimed, then an awareness of God cannot happen. And I'm actually working on my sermon in Acts 2 where Peter gets up and preaches uh, the very first sermon. And he up, he proclaims this, and in there I'm thinking about going my initial sermon into it of the nature of the word of God must be proclaimed, not just shared, not just it's not just even the written account of the gospel, but there's a, there's something that God does through the proclamation or the preaching of the word uh, in the hearts of man. That's just the means that He's ordained. So yeah, and I like these quotes because you know, like for instance, Armstrong says it's an awesome, or he uses the word awful or terrible sense of God's presence. Uh, you know, even Lloyd Jones, it's not like some pablum. Yeah. You know, just some soft kind of romantic notion of God's presence. It's no, I've been confronted now yeah. with a serious, holy, righteous well, God. And and it's also correct understanding, which is why it doesn't arise mystically where all of a sudden you're just infused with this knowledge you never had before. It's because the word of God has been faithfully, rightly taught over and over again. Um, and now, in a sense, it's like the spirit works, and it all comes blossoming up in your mind. But it is. It's not just that fuzzy, what we would call, wow, I really felt God today. What they mean is they had holy goosebumps. You know? Exactly, yeah. But, but then they go right back to porn. So mm -hmm. <laughs> It's very true. Uh, second, then, there is, there is an uncommon readiness to hear God. Uh, now, this is not a statement about you know, subjectively hearing God's voice in a personal uh, or intimate way. Um, perhaps this one can be summed up simply as Paul's statement in 2 Timothy 4.2, where he says, preach the word, uh, be ready in season and out of season. Um, sometimes the word of God is uh, longing to be heard, and other times it's not. Um, when the word is irregularly in season, though, this may be a time of revival, uh, God's people always want God's word, but there are those extraordinary times in which the true church comes into a season of greatly desiring it yeah. uh, that, across actually, the board. John MacArthur argues that that's primarily the reason his church exploded, because he took it, and it went from 300, and it doubled every year for the first four or six years, which is just wild, but it was during a revival. In the in the West Coast, was that and, one of the Jesus movement? Yeah, yeah. And so people just started coming because they all had this just incredible desire to hear the word. And he was just one of those guys expositorily preaching, and so they just began to you know through word of mouth, yeah, come here, come here. Um, but it, it's it's all based off of that. He 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 believes he could never do that again if he was to go start all over again. He because it, it's not in his methodology. It was the spirit working through the preaching of the word. So boring, right? Um, you know, one of the surest marks of spiritual decline in a congregation is when the people lose their appetite, though, for that preached word. Um, so the pastor might be doing nothing different 
um, just remaining faithful to his task to faithfully bring the word. Uh, but for some reason, it's just now become dull. Um, did you have you ever had? <laughs> you just, I mean, has your ministry ebbed and flowed? Yeah, yeah, um, and it, it's yeah. And you wonder if it's your voice or if it's just maybe it's an out of season time. Yeah, and I just conclude that the way I made it, it very simple in my mind was they have to fire me because you're just going to keep preaching. Because, well, because if I try to keep them interested or intrigued, um, then I'm pleasing them. I just want to make certain I preach and that I can walk away and say I was faithful to the text. I wasn't always pleased with how I delivered it, but still the content was faithful. And and yeah, it's, that saw me through those dark times and they come and go. Well, I mean, when you came on, you all of a sudden were so exciting to listen to. I, it, for everybody, it was a fresh voice. Um, and, and, and my actually ministry ebbed a bit as you were in the pulpit down here in Kenosha more often. Now you're up there and my voice is back fully, but now I'm starting to share it with Grayson and, and people kind of react in similar ways with him. It's a fresh voice. Now we have another guy, uh, John, fresh voices. And those are all, you know, ways that for some reason the, the long-term pastor can ebb, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um. Well, in in revival, we would argue, therefore, that this would just be reversed, right? There, there would be an right. inexplicable transformation in the people's hearts. They suddenly and all together start to greatly thirst for the Word of God. And again, the, the pastor is doing nothing different. He's just faithfully bringing that Word. Yep. Um, so Armstrong writes, during these times, the most basic truths presented by the Spirit's power grip multitudes. Um, here's a, a recorded account from a revival on the island of Aaron in 1812. Uh, it says, for some months after the commencement of the awakening, the subjects of its manifested, uh, of it manifested an uncommon thirst after the means of grace. Both old and young flocked in multitudes to hear the word of God. The house and the place employed for private meetings were frequently so crowded that the people, as it were, trod one upon another. To travel 10 or 15 miles to hear a sermon was considered a very small matter. Now, this was in a day when there were no cars, uh, there was no recorded sermons. And so if you wanted the word of God, you had to go and hear it live. Um, <laughs> so for those experiencing times of revival, 15 miles of travel, which would have been a challenge, um, was no big deal. Now, you, which gives you a kind of a sense of, are we in the in-season or out-of-season time when people are complaining because they have to drive a, a, dis, a bit of a distance. 25 minutes, yeah. half hour. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, that was my first thought as well. Um, so here, here's a quote again from Armstrong. He says, revival preachers... Uh, Sussed. <laughs> they were gripped, it means. Gripped mightily by God. Yeah. Um, it's like, why? Why couldn't you just use a normal word, John? Well, is that a uh, mistype? No. That's a legit word. word. All right. I'm shocked you don't know it. It's usually around swales. <laughs> Copses of trees. <laughs> that's, a, that's a private joke, folks. <laughs> uh, no. um, yeah. Okay, so uh, revival preachers sussed mightily by, by God have never adopted new themes. Their subject matter has always been the same. God 
ruin caused by sin, the judgment which is to come, the person and work of Christ, and then the freeness of grace for all who have believed. In addition, revival preachers have been both fearless and urgent. People are generally unused to this type of ministry, especially in spiritually sleepy times like ours. Uh, that's a good quote. Um, so I would say they prefer what now? TED Talks, Styles, um, you know, or they, they make decisions for the churches that they're going to attend based on musical preference or some other non-important yeah, yeah. or consequential issue or reason. But the sign of true revival is genuine flourishing under, well, I don't use this word, difficult yet faithful preaching. Faithful preaching by its very nature is difficult because yeah, it cuts it, yeah, and challenges. Yeah. And, um, You're not avoiding what it says. Right. Um, you got to preach four signs you're unredeemed. Yes. You know? Um, well, so I don't, <laughs> but you did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, so many times this preaching was hard, but it was the truth of God's word. They didn't, you know, preachers didn't shrink back, and yet it would be this kind of preaching um, that would normally shrink a congregation in seasons of non-revival. Um, Duncan Campbell, who was a preacher during the Scottish Revival, uh, which took place in the mid-20th century, had this recorded of him. He said there was nothing complicated about Duncan's preaching. It was fearless and uncompromising. He exposed sin in its ugliness and dwelt at length on the consequences of living and dying without Christ. With a uh, penetrating gaze on the congregation and perspiration streaming down from his face, he set before men and women the way of life and the way of death. It was a solemn thought to him that the eternity of his hearers might turn upon his faithfulness. How many preachers do you think have that in their mind right. these days when they enter a pulpit? He was standing before his fellow men in Christ's stead and could be neither perfunctory nor formal. His words were not just a repetition of accumulated ideas, but the expression of his whole being. He gave the impression of preaching with his entire personality, not merely with his voice. So here the point is not that this kind of preaching is what necessarily um, brought revival about. Uh, rather, during times of revival, uh, even preachers would change um, because they're still part of the church right. and revival's happening to the church. Um, so their gifting seems to nuance or change a bit. So Armstrong states, God has ordained preaching as the primary means for feeding the church of God, and he has ordained pastors to feed the flock with the word of God. Authentic revivals have always restored powerful preaching. And that, and that makes sense because a pastor is no different than anyone else. He's just a normal man. And it, you, you, you've learned it now. I know you understand this. Preaching becomes a grind. You know, you, you finish mm -hmm. on Sunday, you give it your best, and then you have to flush it because um, it's time to start working on the next one. And so you can see how drudgery and and especially if people are receiving it lightly or critically, it just begins to eat at you. And then the Spirit sovereignly works, not just so that they want to hear the Word, but you have such an overwhelming desire to preach the yeah. Word. Um, and that's You a get a fire in your bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so third uh, thing about revival is that there is a deep conviction over sin. Uh, another quote, during seasons of revival, people are made deeply conscious of God. Christians not only come to know about God's power, his love, his wisdom, his greatness, and sovereignty, but they experience these divine excellencies. 
This acute awareness of God's presence inevitably brings about deep conviction over one's personal sinfulness. This should be expected. When Isaiah experienced a personal vision of the Lord seated on his throne, he heard the seraphs calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The prophet was profoundly moved in his inner being. His response is, Woe is me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This kind of experience is a consistent feature of true revival. Both Christians and non-Christians alike are profoundly convicted of their innate sinfulness. Duncan Campbell so often saw such deep conviction of sin during the uh, Lewis revival that he wrote, I have known occasion uh, when it was necessary to stop preaching because of the distress manifested by the anxious. <laughs> and may God do that. Um, normal ministry, then, is slow and long and, and seemingly unfruitful. There is a reason Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season, but with great patience. Uh, preachers can faithfully preach on God, sin, repentance, and judgment, and nothing happens for year, years. But during times of revival, people will all of a sudden become intensely burdened by their sin against a holy God. So one account of a man during the Manchurian revival in China, which was in 1906 to 09, writes this, I cannot describe the scene. It made one think of the judgment day. God had come among us, all knew it, and every heart was open before him. For myself, I had the most intense realization of the holiness of God and of my uncleanness in his sight. Whenever I entered the service, I felt some mysterious power seize me, impelling me to confess my sins, and it was only with the utmost difficulty I could drag myself away. Others would remain at the meetings and were brought under conviction and converted. So when revival strikes, it's not an ambiguous notion of desiring to live a better life or follow Jesus in some vague manner, but rather it is a deep piercing over the sinfulness of sin. This primarily takes, with it, takes place within the church where adult church is freshly awakened to their sin. Well, you even see that with the Acts 2 passage yeah. that you're talking about. It says that they were pierced at heart yep. um, over their sin. They needed to repent and who the person of Christ was. So it's not like these sort of revivalistic meetings you see in charismatic worlds where it's just people falling down or they're feeling yeah. goosebumps or something yeah. like that. Um, fourth, there is a heartfelt, therefore, repentance. Um, there are many times where people are convicted of sin, but it does not lead to true repentance. Um, but during times of revival, it does. Um, you know, you can almost hear yourself saying, you, you know, I know, I know when <laughs> someone points out your sin to you, or you come under conviction that you need to put certain things away in your own life. But during revival, you don't just shrug at it or assume that you'll get around to dealing with it at some other point. Rather, there's that immediate and deep repentance where you're utterly compelled to turn from that sin and turn toward holiness. Um, so Armstrong again says, one mark of repentance in the age of the spirit um, then is that people will not simply believe, but they will mourn. Those who have the spirit of God will mourn over the particular dishonor that they have brought upon his holy name. They will mourn over their wicked unbelief and impenitence. They will mourn over their estrangement from the one who loved them and gave himself for them. 
Repentance is necessary for a person to enter into salvation offered through Christ, but this initial repentance unto life is not the terminus. It is only the beginning. Those who truly believe will spend the rest of their lives repenting. In times of revival, this gift of repentance will be given to the church with profound power, and it will have a general effect upon many at the same time. Brokenhearted, Christ-centered confession and repentance will characterize a true movement of the Spirit. People will sometimes weep under the most profound impressions of sin, but weeping is not an actual evidence of revival. Repentance and the attendant fruit of the Spirit, which cannot be imitated by the enemy, is the real fruit of true revival. That's a good statement. I'm thinking about also, though, um, how we still do things like this. Uh, Paul Washer's shocking sermon to 20,000 youth, right? And and people like hand that out as if somehow resident in him and his sermon, it's, it's somehow going to bring about this revival. But really, it's just the faithful preaching of the country parson right. who, right? But he he's faithfully preaching the word, and then the spirit comes. They come convicted of sin, and then yeah, repentance. that's a good. That's a good point. You know, some people they'll feel like they've grown dull in their walk, so they need to go back and put a sermon on like that. Yeah. But really, that's motivation for like a half hour, or while you're listening to it, you feel a little different. Yeah. Um, but it it, it but doesn't no quite move you to repentance, which is behavioral change. It's I mean, obedience. I've been pastoring for long enough that I'm weary. I'm, I, I really get weary of looking at people and just saying, your problem is not that you don't know what to do. It's just that you won't do it. Mm-hmm. You just won't do it. And you're in here again with tears, pastor, what am I going to do? But you're not doing what you need to do. And um, yeah, it, it, that that simple reality, that repentance, again, you can have great conviction, but if it doesn't attend with repent by what is not attended by, um, what's the word? Obedience. Repentance or ob- obedience and stuff like it, it's it's something less. Yeah. It, well, in this last line, he says repentance and the attendant fruit of the spirit. Yeah. So, so there should be something that, that you can see yeah. that my life has changed. Um, there's actual obedience made manifest there. He says that cannot be imitated by the enemy. Um, so real f- fruit is what marks to revival. Well, contrast that with revival conferences mm-hmm. or worship conferences that you hear of today. Those are not this. Many are, those are emotional events uh, that merely make people feel close to God uh, or something vague. Rather, the mark of true revival again, is, is that brokenness over sin because it's been committed against a holy God. But then beyond that, that brokenness now moves that person to true repentance, um, which is change and transformation. All right. So then a fifth uh, uh, indicator that there is an extraordinary cons- concern for others. Now, the idea here is that true revival is an ethical, has an ethical aspect to it. It never creates an atmosphere of self-centeredness, um, but other-orientedness. Simply put, there is a great recovery of Christ's highest command, which is love. There is a recovery of the one another's. The church begins to live these out in true in a true manner. Love is the essence and the character of God, and so it once again is what begins to characterize his people. 
Further, True Revival always raises up a new generations of ministers and teachers and evangelists and missionaries. There is a great dying to self that takes place where many take risks and begin to think radically for the sake of the gospel. In many of the dead mainline churches, there is a reason they're now dead and moving into extinction. There's no raising up of new leaders with a new passion to preach truth. They think they are other-oriented because they are being busy with social causes, yet that is not the evidence of true revival. True revival always results in an uncontained passion to bring the gospel and exalt great truths of the person of God. This, as we mentioned, leads to a true preaching on sin, judgment, and repentance. Once a church or denomination becomes all about social causes, the Word of God is no longer central, and the decline is inevitable. And I think we'll see that play out in 10 years with this whole social justice movement in evangelicalism. And that's the point. If evangelicalism isn't careful, it's where many churches will find themselves with this new cause of social justice. Uh, There is starting to be a deplatforming of word-centered ministry to social cause-centered ministries. It appeared to be other it appears to be other oriented, but it's not the kind of other orientedness of the scriptures. Uh, and if you want to know why, listen to our episodes on social justice. Unless you think we're just picking on liberals or progressive <laughs> evangelicals, listen to this. Cal Thomas writes, when Christian activists moved into the political arena, they targeted pornography, offensive television, drugs, the gay rights movement, and crumbling families. Pornography is worse than ever. Television uh, continues to stink. Drugs remain a problem. The gay rights agenda advances, and the divorce rates re- rate remains about the same. Conservative evangelicals run the risk of depreciating the ultimate value, that of speaking and hold, uh, building a kingdom, not of this world. There is precedent for what happens to the church's primary witness when it becomes overly entangled in the cares of this world. Look at the liberal churches, which long ago gave up preaching salvation and now mainly focus on political themes. So this is a good uh, warning to the theological liberals, theological conservatives, and theological conservatives who are increasingly becoming progressive or liberal. Um, (laughs) None of that. Uh, None of it is a sign of anything revivalistic or pleasing to God. Much of it is, in fact, a distraction from the true marching orders of the church. And we will not be surprised when progressive uh, conservative evangelicals begin to see the decline (laughs) of their churches. You guys, okay, I have to pause. Uh, we're doing on-the-fly spelling editing, and some of the words were uh, creatively spelled. And so then Matt just literally deleted my script in front of my eyes. <laughs> and then put it back. And then put it back. So I'm going to say this part over again. And we will not be surprised when progressive conservative evangelicals begin to see the decline of their churches that may not be seen right now, but will be in years to come when men are no longer raised up for ministry, so they compromise and they let women take on that role. Which is what you've seen in yeah, all the mainline. Absolutely. Right? That's why you got all the female pastors and so on and, and so forth. right now, Southern Baptists, some of them are pushing hard. I mean, yep. Beth Moore yep. is like the fourth person of Trinity in some people's minds. Mm-hmm. They can't raise up men for ministry anymore, so women take it over and then... Yep. 
See ya. So those are just some thoughts for you. Um, the takeaway here is that true revival, though, results in some definitive things. Um, it's far less of a feeling of something or a sense of closeness with God and far more of a concrete set of markers that you can tangibly see. There's often much talk of revival in the air, but talk and desire for revival is not the evidence of revival. Uh, the church is almost always in need of desperate revival, and it's certainly no different in this day. The world is searching for answers constantly, uh, and as it does, the church needs to stop talking about felt needs and social causes, and once again, just start preaching on the holiness of God, preach on the sinfulness of man. Uh, they need to start giving calls for repentance, um, and then thank Christ that he will be faithful to keep building his church as he promised. So that's revival. Uh, we, we hope that this series overall has been helpful for you. Uh, if you do have any questions or specific topics within revival that you would like us to address, please let us know. Uh, otherwise, next time, we'll talk about something else. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know your thoughts on this. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.